It's good to be with you all this morning. To get us started out here, I have a video I'd like us to watch together. Last time I showed a video, I got in trouble with my wife because it was too scary and um, my kids got scared. I need to say before I show this video, it does have uh, Satan and his demons in it. So uh, if this subject matter is anything, you know, that, that you want to make sure your, your, your kids don't see. I don't think it's super scary, but maybe, maybe a little bit creepy. But it introduces us to our topic this morning that we need to talk about. So that's the full disclosure, and um, we'll go ahead and show, and then we'll talk about it. of earth are caught in a spiritual battle between the legions of hell and the hosts of heaven. The commander of the dark forces, the prince and power of the air, called Satan, has gathered his fallen angels together to further his unholy purposes. Demon of Central Asia, report. May your power ever increase, my lord. The situation in Central Asia is stable. The Soviet communists have conquered all my peoples and forced them to accept atheism. Now, through our lies of atheism and communism, the Kazakhs, the Uzbeks, the Tajiks, and all the peoples in my region are well beyond the reach of any Christian witness. Is there anything else? Yes, my master. Uh, we have one small incident, but it's really nothing. I wouldn't want to bother you with such an insignificant matter. What is it? Well, my lord, a handful of Christians began to pray and send a couple of missionaries into my territory, and now a few Muslims have left our deception to follow the enemy. But who are they among millions? Just a drop in the bucket? Enough! If even one of those Muslim converts starts spreading that poison in your area, you are finished! Demon of North India, come forward. May your power ever increase, my lord. Tell me of sweatshops and idols. My lord, as you command. We have plenty of sweatshops and idols. What's more, those Christians don't even know how many people groups are in India. And they have no plans for starting churches among my many oppressed peoples. Secondly, my lord, those Christians think that poverty is a result of the large population of India. In fact, we're now exporting Hinduism and Buddhism to the more developed nations, repackaged as magic crystals and New Age teachings. <laughs> My lord, it would require a considerable amount of spiritual aggression to overcome these deceptions. Much prayer. And I see that as an impossibility. Impossibility? Remember this. Nothing is impossible for him if those Christians are fully his. <clears throat> With all due respect, my lord, why all the pressure on us? Our peoples don't even have a church in their own cultures. What about all the places where the enemy's gospel is spreading? Why am I so protective of your territories? It's true. The peoples under your jurisdiction have no church that can spread from within. And it had better remain that way. Because there are prophecies that concern me. One is this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
So you see, our destruction cannot come as long as your territories remain closed. North America. May your power ever increase. I am aware that there are many Christians in North America. Have they learned to pray yet? Oh, my Lord, I have them in the palm of my hand. I have convinced most of the enemy's disciples that prayer is not all that important. They believe it to be dull and time-consuming compared with so many stimulating activities that don't advance the gospel. I've enticed them to chase after high-paying jobs and materialistic gain. Then, through their many possessions, I have lulled them to sleep in lives of comfort, convenience, and complacency, so that now many of them don't even know they are in the middle of a spiritual war. Because I've created a humanistic society that doesn't believe in the spirit realm, those immobilized Christians give only lip service to that awesome means of spiritual destruction, the enemy's weapon of prayer. Oh, I let them play at prayer, but I keep them praying for what they love the most, themselves and their poor, sick relatives. Yes, yes, good. Now... Someone finds South Korea. He has a lot of explaining to do. I show this video. This is obviously just someone's imagination, uh, someone's idea of what the spiritual realm might look like based on what we know from Scripture. Um, this is not something that we, we think about a lot in our society today, like the video mentioned, our, our humanistic society that uh, really doesn't acknowledge the spiritual realm uh, very much at all. But if we take Scripture seriously, we understand that there is a real spiritual battle going, around, going on around us, in our lives, in our world, and, and, and we're caught up in this, even though we can't always See it, and that's what our our passage is is about this morning, and so that's why I, I show this video to just kind of spur your imagination, your your thoughts about um, this this spiritual battle, and this is real. This is real. If Satan were were to have a a meeting like this today with his with his uh, territorial demons, these principalities and powers that that are at work in our world. You might hear from the, 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 the demon of Afghanistan bragging about the, the rise of the Taliban and the, the, the oppression of the Afghani people. You might hear, you might hear spirits bragging about the, the effects of the coronavirus and COVID and how it has wreaked havoc on, on God's people throughout the world. And, and, and we live in a spiritual battle. We experience the oppression of the enemy, and it weighs on us as the people of God. And there's this real sense these days that, 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 that I, I, I get the feeling that we are just wrestling with hopelessness, a feeling of defeat, a feeling of real oppression, uh, from the enemy, the church in the United States of America is, is under attack. The church around the world and God's people are wrestling with this sense of oppression. Now, this is nothing new. 
Of course, these feelings of, of hopelessness, of despair, of, of being uh, caught up in this, this, this battle and like, what are we supposed to do? How are we ever going to emerge victorious? Um, there's so much evil in the world, so many terrible things going on. This is the exact uh, situation that, that the audience of the book of Ephesians found themselves in, in the first century, when the Apostle Paul wrote to them. We're going to turn to the book of Ephesians this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to consider Paul's words to the Ephesian church as he encouraged them in the spiritual battle that, that they faced. Now, as we go to Ephesians, I want to I catch you up on the story a little bit that led to Paul's writing the book of Ephesians. We know that Paul, uh, Paul spent almost three years in the city of Ephesus um, during his missionary journeys from uh, about 52 to 55 A.D., Paul set up shop in Ephesus. He rented out the hall of Tyrannus, Acts chapter 19 tells us. And in this lecture hall, he presented the gospel and taught the believers through the word of God for two and a half years. Paul spent a lot of time in this city. This city was a city of great spiritual oppression. And Paul encountered this spiritual oppression during his time in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19. This is a city, Ephesus, where the, uh, the, the seven sons of Sceva, one of the Jewish priests, uh, attempted to cast out demons abusing the name of Jesus, uh, and the, the, the demons overpowered them and chased them away naked. Acts 19 tells us this story. This is the city where the residents, as they came to Christ, became so convicted about their involvement in sorcery and magical practices that they brought all their spell books and burned them publicly. And it was about 50,000 pieces of silver worth, we're told, in Acts chapter 19. This is the city where the, 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 uh, the, the silver workers... Who, the craftsmen who made these, uh, these statues, these figurines of the Greek goddess Artemis, whose temple was in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And there was this whole economy built around her worship. And as the believers came to faith in Christ, and as the gospel spread in the city, it had such an impact on the economy as people stopped buying these idols a great riot broke out in the city of Ephesus, and the, silvers, the silversmiths and the craftsmen riled the city up, and they, they all got together in the amphitheater and shouted out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, overpowering the, 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 the handful of believers, and yet God sustained the church, and it grew. This was the environment that the church sprouted up and grew from under Paul's ministry in Ephesus for those three years. Now, when Paul wrote Ephesians, we know from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he was under house arrest in Rome. He was in chains. He had been in chains probably for two or three years. The last time he had visited with the Ephesian church was when he was on his way to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20. And he made a special stop outside Ephesus and brought the leaders of the church 
to visit with him, gave them one last exhortation and said, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I know that great trials await me there. People were out to get Paul. They didn't like the message he was spreading. But he knew the Spirit was leading him to Jerusalem. And so he didn't know when he would see the Ephesian elders again. And Acts 20 tells us they wept there on the shore as Paul departed for Jerusalem. Of course, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and shipped off to Rome. And here, two or three years later, we find Paul under arrest in Rome, in chains, writing a message of encouragement to this church that he had helped plant in Ephesus. They haven't seen him, but he knows the trials and the oppression they experience in their city. The city that is renowned throughout the Roman Empire as the seat of the great goddess Artemis. There are the the famous Ephesian words, or the Ephesian letters, which was this, this powerful incantation or spell that everybody knew about. They would bind it, write it out, and put it in a little sack that they would wear as an amulet against evil. And Paul knows the spiritual environment that they face, the oppression that the church faces every day. And he knows that as more people in Ephesus come to faith, they too are grappling with this background and this this spiritual war that's at work. And so he pens the book of Ephesians. And he sends it to them by the hands of his colleague Tychicus, who takes the book of Ephesians as well, drops it off in Ephesus, and then goes on to Colossae with the book of Colossians to the church there. So these are the words of an imprisoned pastor who is pouring himself out, encouraging the church to continue on. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, and you're welcome to follow along. What I want to share with you is kind of an an oral translation of Ephesians chapter 2, so feel free to, to, to listen to the words as I deliver them, as I imagine Paul might have delivered them were he speaking in person. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you used to be dead in your sins. You were living in ways that were completely contrary to the path that God wanted you to walk walk in. You were living like everyone else of our present age, under the subject and the authority of the ruler of the air, the evil spirit who we call Satan, who is still at work among everyone who is disobedient to God. We used to be just like them, acting on every inclination of our flesh, following every whim that might pop into our minds or our bodies, We were children who were destined to experience the wrath of God simply because of who we were, how we had been born. But God didn't want to give us that wrath that we deserved. And because of his great love for us, he brought us back to life in the Messiah. You have been saved because God gave you that you didn't deserve. Together with the Messiah Jesus, God brought us back to life. 
And with Jesus, he gave us a seat alongside him in the heavens so that in the ages that are coming, we might witness the uncountable riches that God wants to share with us through his kindness to us in the Messiah, Jesus. You have been saved by God's grace through faith. This isn't something you've earned for yourselves. This is God's gift. It's not a result of any good works that you've done. So nobody can brag about it. But you are God's handiwork. He has created you in the Messiah, Jesus, so that you can do good works. And what's more, he's already marked them out ahead of time so that you can live in the way he intends. These are Paul's words of encouragement to the Ephesian church. And you can imagine how they would have been received for this church that was caught up in such a spiritual struggle. And I want to unpack them a little bit. Look in a little more detail at what Paul says here. Paul is basically comparing two different periods, two different phases in a person's life, in the life of these believers in Ephesus. And they are equally applicable to us today. What are the two phases of life that Paul's comparing? The first, uh, the first four verses... First, first three verses, Paul's talking about their life before Christ. B.C., right? Their life B.C. What was like, life like before you came to faith in Christ? And then from 4 through 10, he talks about life in the Messiah. What is life like for those who have been saved by Messiah Jesus? So we've got this comparison of life, B.C., life, A.D. And for each category, he says four basic things. He unpacks four basic truths about what life was like before Christ, and then he applies those same four basic truths to life in the Messiah. Four things as we look at these, these, um, these verses. What are the four things that emerge? In verses 1 through 3, what are the four things that Paul says about life before we came to Christ? What was life like? I'll line them all out for you here, and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about each one. Okay, as you look, just kind of sequentially through the verses. Verse 1, before Christ, we were spiritually dead. We were dead. He says, you were dead in your sins. Point two, we were subject to Satan. We were under the power of Satan and his demonic forces. Three, we were trapped. We were trapped so that we were following the inclinations of our minds and bodies. Trapped in these sins. And four, he says, we were destined to experience God's wrath. By nature, children of wrath. That's not a pretty picture that Paul paints about life 
outside of Christ. Now let's talk about these things a little bit. First of all, spiritual death. Paul says we were spiritually dead in our sins, and he uses this word transgressions. Now, the idea of a transgression is simply the idea that you're walking on a path, but then, or, or, or trespasses, not transgressions, you're, you're on a path, but you, you step off the path that God has marked off for you. You step off and you're trespassing into an area that God did not intend for us to be in. We've stepped off the path that God has marked out for us as a human race, and we are dead. We've experienced spiritual death. Spiritual death. Subject to Satan. We were under the authority of the one that Paul says, he calls him the ruler of the power of the air. Why does he call him the ruler of the power of the air? Well, he's talking about the, the, the lower heavens, the, 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 the air around the world. This is the domain of Satan and his spirits, this world. Satan has authority over this world. You think, well, why did God create, uh, create this world and then hand it over to Satan for authority? That doesn't make sense. Well, to understand this, uh, we have to step back to the original design of creation, Right? Who was in charge of God's world originally? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Who did God put in charge of his creation? He put men and women in charge of his creation. Genesis 1, 26. God said, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over the, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and every creeping thing that creeps across the face of the earth. God gave that authority to men and women, originally in the Garden of Eden, God created his world and handed his kingdom over to his, the rulers that he had created for the world. That's what we were created for. But what did men and women do? How did Satan get authority? We handed it over to him, right? When we made that decision not to worship the Creator, but to follow after the lies that the enemy was telling us, we gave up that authority. And it's like saying, here you go. And since that moment, the prince of the power of the air, the dark lord Satan, has been exercising authority, keeping men and women trapped and enslaved to these sins in which they are spiritually dead. So we're spiritually dead, subject to the power of Satan, these evil powers that operate in the world today, and we are trapped in our sins. What does he say? We're following every whim of our mind and our body. Whatever pops into our mind is basically what people do. Now, again, going back to the original design, that is not how God created us to be, slaves to our minds and bodies. What was God's original vocation for men and women? What was their vocation? He gave them a special identity. He created them in his image. So as we were created to exercise God's reign over the earth, 
It was a role of bearing the divine image and reflecting God's character to His great creation. We were to be His examples. We were to live in a way that pointed everyone back to God and just gives God the glory and honor for His great and majestic work. We were created for lives that honor God as God's image bearers. And we gave up that that vocation when we made that decision to follow a lie. The human race as a whole, I'm talking about. So no longer are humans able to accurately live in a way that gives glory and honor to God. Subject to the whims of our minds and our bodies. And the end result is that we're destined to experience the wrath of God. Destined to experience the wrath of God. Again, not His original design, but when a holy God is in the presence of sin. It's like fire that will just incinerate anything that goes against His character and His being. So the the picture of life before Christ is not a pretty picture. It's a desperate one. And it's one that we're all familiar with, one way or the other, because we've all been there. We all know what we as human beings are capable of. I mean, we see it at work in the world around us with these terrible things happening. We see it in ourselves, don't we? Even as believers, we see ourselves and what what we would be capable of outside of Christ, and it's not a pretty picture. But Paul doesn't leave the Ephesians there. He's reminding them of what life was like, and they're probably looking at their city around them and feeling all of these things, but what is their identity? And here we turn to life in the Messiah Jesus. And Paul addresses these same four aspects. He says in verse 3, or verse 4, But God, but God didn't want to give us what we deserve. He's rich in mercy. Mercy means he doesn't want to give us the, the fate we deserve. He doesn't want to mete out his wrath on these puny humans. That's not his desire And he makes a way. And Paul unpacks four things that he does. Those same four things we see. The person who was spiritually dead is raised to new life in the Messiah. Yeah, we we all know Jesus raised, uh, God raised Jesus from the dead, right? Jesus rose from the dead. But do you realize that when Jesus rose from the dead, You were raised up with him. I was raised up with him. I was raised up from my spiritual death and enabled to live this life of glorifying God once again. We are raised to new life in the Messiah. That's the first thing. Spiritual death resurrected, risen again. What's the second thing? 
But we were under the power of Satan, right? We were subject to his authority because we handed those keys of the kingdom over to Satan. But what does God do for the believer? We're told that not only are we raised to new life, we are seated in the heavens with Jesus. We are seated in the heavens with the Messiah. What does that mean to have a seat in the heavens? Well, we have to go back a few verses to understand what's going on here. These verses that Luke read for us um, during the, the pastoral prayer time. In chapter 1, Paul is talking about the power of God and praying that the Ephesians will experience the, the awesome power of God in their lives. And he comments on this power and what it does and where it's from. In one twenty, he says, He demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. Now, what does it mean to be seated at the right hand of the king? It's a position of authority. It means you're the second in command. And Jesus has been resurrected and given this seat at God's right hand in the heavens, given a position of authority, and that's what Paul says. He's far above every ruler, authority, power, and dominion. Jesus is far above any of these spiritual forces that are at work in the world today. They are subject to Jesus' authority. They have to obey Him. They have no authority over Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection was the moment at which these spiritual powers were vanquished. Now, they're still at work in the world until He returns, but they have to obey Him. They cannot do anything outside of what He allows And guess what? Guess who is seated there with Jesus? Paul says here in Ephesians 2, we are raised up and seated in the heavens with Jesus. So who has spiritual power over us today? These demons have no authority, no power over us today. This evil that we see in the world does not have to discourage us and dishearten us and make us feel like, oh, we're, 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 we're never going to overcome. Uh, it can be depressing to look at the evil in the world, but remember as believers, the evil in the world has no spiritual power over us. We are seated in the heavens with Jesus the Messiah. So we're raised to new life, seated in the heavens. And what else does it say? It says we're no longer destined for wrath. What are we destined for now? Destined for kindness. For kindness. It says that he wants to show us the riches of his kindness, of his grace, through his kindness to us in the Messiah, Jesus. We're no longer destined to experience the wrath of God because God has made a way out. And all he wants to do is lavish on his creation the wonderful kindness that he always intended to share with us. So we're no longer destined for wrath, we're destined to kindness. And lastly... While we used to be trapped 
following the inclinations of our bodies and minds, unable to honor God and walk in the path he had marked out for us, what are we able to do now? Look at verse two, chapter 2, verse 10. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus for what? To do good works. The same good works that we used to be trapped, we were stuck, we couldn't live the life that God had intended for us originally as human beings, the life as his image bearers pointing people to him and channeling the praise of his glory. But now, in the Messiah Jesus, he has brought us back to life and he has already marked out these good works that he had planned for us from the beginning. So, spiritual death to being raised again to new life in Christ. Under the power of Satan to being seated in the heavens beside Jesus. Destined for wrath, but now we're destined for kindness. Trapped in the inclinations of our own flesh to being recreated as God's handiwork to live out the good works. It's like night and day. This is our identity as believers in the Messiah. This is what he enables us to do and how he enables us to live. So how are believers to respond when we see all this terror and evil at work and around us? And we feel so powerless to do anything about it. How are we to respond? In a world dominated by evil, we exercise our spiritual authority in the Messiah to live as God has planned. That's our role as believers in this dark world today. In other words, Jesus gives us power to overcome evil and to live lives that honor God. Jesus gives us that power to overcome evil and live lives that honor God. Three truths that I want to unpack here and apply in a real way to our lives today. Truth number one, our spiritual enemies have no power over us except for what we give them as believers. Our spiritual enemies have no power over us except for what we give them. What areas of life have you surrendered to the enemy. The enemy has a lot of different ways of working in the lives of believers, working against us. He's still at work. He'd love to confuse us, to get us off track, to distract us from these lives of good works that God has marked out for us to do. But he has no power except for what we surrender. When I was a young man, when I was in high school, uh, I want to give you an example from my own life of this this way we we surrender things to to the enemy. And for me, uh, as a high school student, I was exposed to pornography on the internet. And that 
pornography can become a tool that Satan uses to just get you in his grasp. Addiction. Maybe it's not pornography. Maybe it's alcohol, drugs. But addiction is one of the big tools that Satan uses in believers today to distract them from this. So what was, what was the way out for me to, to, to escape this, this powerful pull, you know, this exciting thing that, that distracts you from God's plan? Well, for me in high school, I was, I was here in this church. I was in the youth group over in Mellis. Pastor Jay McCumber was our youth pastor. I remember he, he gave a, a survey around this time of the high school students, and it was supposed to be this uh, sexuality survey, and uh, completely anonymous, and, and one of the questions was about, uh, how many, have, you, have you looked at pornography on the internet? And we're all doing this anonymous survey. Uh, <laughs> but when the results came out, 100% of the boys in youth group had said, yes, I look at pornography on the internet. So the, the, the secret was out. We didn't have that, that, <laughs> that, um, that, 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 that feeling of un- anonymity. And um, I got together with three of my friends, my best friends in high school in the youth group, and we got together and we just formed a prayer group. You might fall, call it a fight club, fighting against this, this, uh, this distraction that the enemy was putting in our lives. And we prayed. And that we prayed for each other. And through this, through this, uh, this prayer and this supporting one another, we were able to, to help each other uh, escape this, 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 you know, you might call it a stranglehold that Satan can exercise on you. Prayer is the tool that God gives to defeat the works of the enemy. How do we fight this battle? We fight it on our knees against whatever it is in your life. We may have given that authority to Satan to take us and shake us up and and beat us up. But all we have to do is to pray, to to repent and reclaim that authority and say, God, get this out of my life. And it's, it's hard. It's a constant battle. I mean, Satan's constantly sending minion after minion after minion after you. And it's this prayer, this constant reclamation of these areas in our life that keep us on the track that God has set off for us so that we're not trespassing off into the, 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 all the distractions. Another, another example is materialism. The video we watched addressed that. Materialism can be such a stranglehold on the American church as we, as we get so excited about our, um, our, our, our amassing of wealth and and it doesn't last. But that is one of the great tools. Addiction, materialism, anxiety. That's a big one. Anxiety is a tool, or we might call it fear, that the enemy uses in our lives. Having a hard time trusting God with the lives of your kids as we send them off to school. Second-guessing artists, oh, am I doing the right thing? What should I? Anxiety can be a great 
tool of the enemy in our lives today that he uses to get us off this track of honoring God. Or shame. Shame. Oh, I'm worthless. I can never amount to anything. I don't deserve what God's given me. Leads to depression. Leads to all sorts of distractions from the course that God has marked out for us. What areas of your life do you need to pray and reclaim from the enemy? Because that is not who God has created you to be. You hear these accusing thoughts, the enemy whispering things in your ear. You know it's the enemy when you hear things in the second person. You're not worth it. What are you doing? That's the enemy. That's the voice of the enemy accusing you. That's his tool, the accuser of the brethren, right? That's not what God has designed for you. So through prayer, all we have to do is get on our knees and tell God, God, I've Turn this area over back to you. I reclaim this authority that I've given to the enemy, and I ask you to judge these minions of Satan at your feet. And God will deliver you. Sometimes it's a daily prayer that you need to pray to remind yourself of your position in Christ and that the enemy has no power over you. So our spiritual enemies have no power over us except for what we give them. Truth two. Through faith in the Messiah, believers can experience life as God has planned. Ephesians 2, verses 9 and 10 say that God has predestined us for what? To do good works. Through raising us up in Christ and seating us in the heavens, He has allowed us to live the life that He meant for us to live at the beginning as a human race and as individuals. Now, these good works is not just helping little old ladies across the street every now and then. That's, that's, that's what we might think of when we read about, you know, God has planned out good works for us to do. No, God has planned a life for you to live as his believer that will point the world to him. Is your life doing that? Are you walking in the good works that God has laid out for you? What are those good works? It's different for everybody. For some of us, it may mean a change in career. As we think about God's calling in our life and what we really wanted to do versus the the burden that He's given us spiritually, I experienced that as a young man. I went from wanting to go into uh, the field of engineering to receiving this burden for the lost and being called into ministry. And that's, that's, that's an example from my, life, from my life. Maybe it's a calling to take some time away from your, your, your workaholic world and focus on pouring into your kids for a little bit. It's different for everybody. Maybe the, the good works that God has, has laid out for you, they're, 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 they're different for me than for you, but God has good works planned for you to walk in, and is your life reflecting the image of God right now? If not, what changes do you need to make to make that happen? Truth number three, 
This new life in the Messiah is available to everyone through faith. This new life in the Messiah is available to everyone through faith. Paul says you have been saved by God's grace through faith. It's not something you have to earn for yourself. In fact, you can't earn it. You can't walk in those good works until you accept the gift of salvation. Accepting a gift, though, is something that you have to decide. You know, I think of, at the, uh, imagine you're out, 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 at, um, out, out to lunch with somebody. And you have this great meal, and you order whatever you want. And then at the end, you know, your, your, your company says, okay, I've got the bill. How do you feel when they offer to pay for your meal? There's kind of this cultural obligation that you've got to argue. No, let me. I, I, it's okay. And, and you put up a fight. You don't want to accept the gift, right? Maybe it'll make you in debt to that person. Like, oh, well, then I've got to buy the next meal or something like that. Or maybe, maybe you just want to save face and not feel, oh, I've got enough money. I, I don't need your help. I, it's a gift that God is offering to you. And we do the same thing spiritually when God offers us this gift. As, as humans, we think of all the reasons we don't deserve this gift. No, God, I, I don't need your gift. I'm fine on my own. I can do it. And we try to live a life that, that pleases Him, and we don't realize how dead and hopeless we are until we accept that gift. Maybe you're here today and you've never experienced that gift of salvation that God is longing to give you. He is a God of mercy. He does not want to give us what we deserve. He wants to give us a gift that we don't deserve. All you have to do to accept that gift is to respond in faith, trusting in Jesus, the Messiah, who has conquered evil on your behalf and will raise you to new life. Make that decision today if you're in that position. Paul's letter to the Ephesians reminds us that though we will experience spiritual oppression, evil holds no real authority in our lives as believers. We've been brought back to life. We're given a seat of power and authority with Jesus in the heavens. And because of the work of Jesus, we're empowered to fulfill our God-given role as His image bearers. So what does that mean for you this morning? What do you need to do? One, if you've never done so, exercise faith in Jesus. Accept that gift of new life that God is offering everyone in the world. Don't let another day go by before you accept God's gift. You can be made known. You can walk in the life that he's marked out for you, but you will fail until you accept that gift. Two, think about areas of your life in which you have handed power back to the enemy. Things you've surrendered to him. Addictions, fears, anxieties, self-doubt. These are the tools of the enemy that he uses to distract you from the life he wants you to live. Reclaim those through repentance and prayer. 
on a daily basis. Get on your knees. Fight that war. Get some, some friends around you who can support you in the battle because we are in a battle and the enemy will render us ineffective if we are not on our knees before God continually claiming his authority in these areas of our lives. And lastly, what changes do you need to make to continue in the good works that God has already marked out for you? Are you honoring him, reflecting his image with your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for raising us to new life in Jesus. We thank you for seating us alongside him in the heavens so the powers of evil have no more sway in our life. Father, we thank you for the riches of your kindness and grace that you want to lavish upon us. And we thank you for the good works that you've marked out for us to live. Please empower us to do so on a daily basis. In Jesus' name. Amen.